for our audience that doesn't know your body of work, my family is sick and tired of hearing me talk about Coyote America. Of, of I've started, I've read um, your new book, Wild New America, um, uh, or Wild New World, rather. Um, but I have probably bought and handed out a dozen copies, and that's without exaggeration, I'm prone to exaggeration, this is without exaggeration, either Kindle version or physical version of Coyote America, because I was so fascinated with the conversation you had on Rogan, and you you dive into the other books that you talk about in that conversation, but that book, this creature that I so misunderstood, I grew up, spent most of my life in uh, California or Texas growing up, I live near Atlanta, Georgia now, and you know what we don't have here? We don't have a lot of big cats. We don't have um, grizzly. We don't have sagebrush or whatever, but we got coyotes. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere we've lived, these animals, and I didn't understand them, and this isn't a conversation about coyotes, but that's where I first fell in love with you and your ability to tell a story. And a few of those things, um, I was like, that can't be true. And I would not just take your source material, I just go out into the world and look, and I'm like, like, crap, it's true. These things are, and I fell in love with this animal. Um, and so that was sort of our my journey into your world. And as I've just read more and more and more and listened to you talk, it's just, uh, it's been a one-sided love affair, so I appreciate it. That's my way of confessing I'm a stalker. <laughs> Well, I doubt you're a stalker, but I do appreciate you reading those books. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I obviously feel the same way about uh, about coyotes. And, and indeed, uh, as you know, from reading Wild New World and American Serengeti about a whole host of, of animals, uh, some of whom we once had in incredible abundance in North America and have completely lost or have come very close to losing our no longer as wild creatures. I mean, they exist, but they're not wild anymore. So I've been interested in uh, in animals since I was a, a kid. I mean, I happened to grow up uh, in a rural setting in Louisiana in a very small town uh, with my grandparents uh, owning a farm about three miles away from where my mom and dad and uh, brothers and sisters and all lived. And so uh, I had this uh, this kind of old-fashioned 1950s, 1960s uh, upbringing in America where you get to have a lot of animals around you. And so mm -hmm. I had, uh, you know, as I uh, tell the story in Wild New World, that's kind of a, it's an important story for Wild New World. I tell about the first little animal companion I owned, which was a little chicken when I was about four years old. Uh, that uh, is, uh, as I said, kind of a, a crucial story to how I came to write Wild New World, uh, what happened to that chicken, and and how my, uh, my mother explained to me uh, what the fate of uh, a chicken versus a human would be. And so I, I had uh, animals. I had uh, a pet goat when I was five. I had horses when I was 10. I had dogs from as long ago as I can remember. And I've sort of uh, done that for most of my life. And because I grew up in a rural place, I also got exposed to a lot of wild creatures when I was young. And one of the ones that I got exposed to, which was as much of a shock to me uh, in Louisiana in the 1960s as 
uh, hearing coyotes howl outside Atlanta is for you, no doubt, mm -hmm. was encountering for the first time coyotes in the bayous and swamps of Louisiana and uh, writing a letter to Louisiana Fish and Wildlife and asking them what in the world had I just seen. And they explained to me that coyotes were colonizing out of the West, across the Mississippi River, into the South, uh, across the Great Lakes country into upstate New York. So I began to realize that this world that I was viewing wasn't a static world. Things were on the move and uh, that was pretty intriguing to me. So that coyote story that I finally told in Coyote America was one that really grabbed my attention from the time uh, I was about uh, 13 or 14 years old. It grabs everybody's attention that I steer towards the story, and uh, I'm not going to. We may touch on it a couple times in this conversation. I know there's a num you've done a number of conversations online, and I I can link people to those. But it is in your ability to tell this story, not just about that animal, has completely changed my perspective. As these things do, when you get what I feel like is a fair, truthful um, examination of the facts certainly the, the facts as you understand them and you peer review research present uh, in a very objective way, it gives me an opportunity, maybe that's is one of the way, reasons why I really resonated with it, not just because of the animal, but I, it, it felt, um, it didn't just feel authentic, it felt legitimate. Like it was, I'm able to in a world that often I have to try to decipher what's true, what's opinion, what's misinformation. And and it's, an, it's a compelling story, not just about this animal, but about the world the animal lived in, uh, you know, as this European settler, our Americans were interacting with it, the Native Americans that were here, the Native, um, the native populations and how they felt about it and, and how resilient that animal is. And then your ability to tell the story, it's, uh, spectacularly compelling and I can see why you would want to why you'd want to tell it yes indeed uh, you know the animal has uh, been uh, present for me uh, for my literally my entire life certainly since as I mentioned uh, I was 13 or so years old and right. uh, everywhere I've lived in my adult because I've largely lived in the American West, but of course you can live anywhere in America now. Hawaii is the only American state that doesn't have coyotes. Uh, coyotes are a fixture and they're, they're among, along with deer, uh, the largest wild animals that most Americans see. And probably a lot of Americans who never thought much about coyotes are, are beginning to have experiences with them. So. Um, I've spent my entire adult life, I, I lived in, uh, uh, after I finished my education, I lived uh, in West Texas for a while. Uh, then uh, I was at the University of Montana, so I was in Montana for more than two decades. Uh, and then uh, I live today outside Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, and coyotes have been present everywhere. They're just kind of a fixture of the world. And one of the reasons I will say that I have written all three of these recent animal books, uh, including the, the new one, Wild New World, is to try to give Americans, uh, my neighbors, uh, 
people in the academic community, people uh, certainly outside the academic community, because I primarily write for public audiences, some sense of a story of these wild creatures that have been present in America for millions of years. We, after all, are, are newcomers to the continent. Coyotes and wolves have been here for more than 5 million years. Passenger pigeons have been here for 15 million years. I mean, on and on and on, you can go down the list of all these creatures that have been part of North America's bestiary. And they have been here for most of them for many millions of years. And yet somehow in the last 500 years, as a result of the presence of old worlders, uh, mm -hmm. my own uh, ancestors and yours coming to America 500 years ago, many of these creatures have not, have not been able to survive our presence. They were able to survive the presence of human beings, at least some of these animals were, uh, mm -hmm. for very long periods of time uh, in the form of native people. But uh, when old worlders arrived with a particular kind of uh, not only a, a technology, which of course uh, is a topic that appeals to you, but also with a kind of a philosophical mindset about the relationship between humans who old worlders regarded as exceptional and all other creatures in the world. I mean, that story then became one of tragedy. Passenger mm -hmm. pigeons, just to give one example, that were here for 15 million years, could not survive 400 years of our presence before the most numerous bird on the planet had become completely extinct. So those are stories that, I mean, I know people kind of have a maybe a vague sense that once there was a bird called the passenger pigeon, but most of the folks I've talked to don't have any more idea about what happened to passenger pigeons and why they're not here then they have an idea of why coyotes suddenly are showing up all over the country. So these, these last three books that I've written uh, about animals have all been dedicated to the proposition of trying to alert the present population of the country, the reading population of the country that's interested in nature uh, to these stories so that they understand, so that they look at an animal like a coyote showing up on a suburban street and they understand why that animal is there, what role that animal has played, and that they don't just buy into the sort of uh, urban legend street talk about coyotes, but actually understand the animal, its natural history and the role that it plays in North America and has long played. So, it's a kind of a, an effort on my part. I was intrinsically fascinated with all this stuff myself, but I had the kind of larger objective of wanting to uh, spread the word among the, the reading public uh, about stories that I'm pretty certain most people don't know. It, yes. The obvious story that when I read the books, I expected and did and did encounter was the bestiary bestiary story. The what I didn't expect was the um, consequence of action, and where my mind sort of went to was if this is the consequence of a philosophical mindset or a 
impact of technology or whatever the combination of things were from a few hundred years ago. And we have technology today that the whole world is talking about, artificial intelligence, whether that in, in various forms, uh, big data, um, machine learning, just a, a bunch of things. I'm in the data center business. If we could impact so significantly the world around us in, in what most of us, I think, would think would be a very sort of quaint world in, in whatever level of technology we had back then. We have technology, maybe different form, but we have technology um, today, everything from not just firearms. I happen to be a fire responsible, I would like to think, firearm owner. But no, I don't mean just primarily firearm. I just mean in general that okay. if um, the the whether unintended or um, intended consequence of not being thoughtful in how we leverage technology along with having a, a philosophical mindset uh, about the world around us, we can impact exponentially more profoundly. And if we had such an impact um, in our own recent history, in fact, this is one of the things you talk about this thing that really caught my imagination, which was if you, there have been extinction events throughout all of Earth's life on Earth's existence. But to put this in context, with some of the most numerous species on Earth in the history of the Earth, without a meteor hitting it or some uh, slow but um, unstoppable environmental change, with this with with this particular group of human beings, and I love those group of human beings. I'm descended from those group of human beings. So I'm not trying to pick on them, but these folks essentially caused an extinctual event, multiple extinctual events, in the blink of an eye where when they happened before, they were either some big cataclysmic event or they took millennia to accomplish. Yeah. And if we could do that, we, um, and this isn't a doom and gloom podcast, but it just, it really got me to think then about, man, I would really like to talk to Dan about not just his perspective, but sort of this emerging world of technology and what it looks like and how it's accelerating. Um, because the consequence of missing, whether intended or unintended, is pretty significant, and we have the history to show it in the area that you write, much less other areas. Yeah, I, I, in a lot of ways, I will say that I wrote Wild New World in particular, which is, uh, of course, the, the new book. Um, right. It's been out about half a year now. I wrote that book. Uh, in contrast to Coyote America, which is about uh, one specific animal and and its biography mm -hmm. in the North American story, and American Serengeti, uh, which is another book of mine that's uh, six or seven years old now, which was about what happened to the animals of the Great Plains. I mean, we we had a part of North America that was very much a kind of a, an equivalent, an analog of the Serengeti or the Maasai Mara of East Africa, except whereas that part of the world, countries like Kenya and Tanzania, preserve those creatures in big game parks where you can now go and experience what it's like to travel among elephants uh, and kudus and impala and sea lions and, and cheetahs uh, and leopards and all of that wondrous bestiary still preserved in East Africa, in North America, we basically obliterated our Serengeti. Mm. We destroyed almost all the animals, drove the ones that remained 
into the Rocky Mountains where some of them managed to survive and converted virtually all of the Great Plains into farms and ranches. And so uh, that story, that American Serengeti story is kind of a very specific story to that part of the world and those particular five or six or seven large animals that we had uh, up until about 120 years ago and that disappeared. But while the world, uh, I tried to, it, it, it's the third book in that, that trilogy. And with this one, I tried to step back uh, in a way that speaks to some of the questions uh, you're posing, because what I tried to do in Wild New World was to offer a really a big history story that reaches back to the last great extinction, the so-called fifth extinction, which is the Chicxulub uh, asteroid impact 66 million years ago. And the reason I started it there is because uh, I tried to begin that book with how North America acquired its modern bestiary of animals, how it acquired all these creatures that we think of as being classic American creatures, including quite a number that we don't think of much anymore because they became extinct long ago. I mean, we, of course, once had uh, mastodons and mammoths, and we had saber-toothed cats, and we had a version of American uh, hunting hyenas, and uh, we had an American lion and a cheetah and uh, short-faced bears and all kinds of creatures that we no longer have that we lost between about 15,000 and 10,000 years ago, including animals that we don't think of as being American these days. We don't think of camels as being American, but camels had evolved in North America after uh, the asteroid that uh, took the dinosaurs out and produced the age of mammals. Horses were an American uh, evolutionary uh, creature that came out of our past and were here while they spread to the rest of the world and survived. Uh, they didn't survive here, uh, disappeared about 8,000 years ago. So I tried with Wild New World to take the story back kind of to its origins. Uh, for North America, almost to the dawn of everything, when everything begins. And part of that, of course, is to track human evolution out of Africa as humans of various species began to emerge and spread around the globe what I tried to do was to treat North America as it was the last great, along with South America, the last great continents that humans coming out of Africa find on the planet. Mm -hmm. I mean, we get to, for example, Europe by, well, uh, previous species of us, uh, the ancestors of Neanderthals and Denosovans, got to Europe uh, 800, 900,000 years ago. Our own species, Homo sapiens, uh, got out of Africa to Europe in large numbers about 60,000 years ago. And those people began spreading. The Neanderthals and Denosovans didn't get any farther than Asia, but modern humans who replaced them, as we know, got to Siberia and when conditions were right, first beginning about 23,000 years ago, and then in a kind of a large volume of migration uh, sometime after 16,000 years ago, when conditions allowed an overland trek out of Asia into North America, they began coming here. So what I try to do with that book, the first 
about three chapters of Wild New World are on topics that people used to call prehistory. You know, right. it's before people are sitting down and writing down the kind of history that we use to tell the story of the Greeks and the Romans and uh, the rise of uh, the European uh, nation states. This is history that's taking place much farther back in time. But of course, it's very important human history because the truth is we emerge as a successful species as predators. And that's one of the things you have to kind of keep in mind as you track this story into the future. I mean, in Wild New World goes all the way down to 2022. So it's a story that takes us very much into the present day. But you do have to remember that these are our origins. We, By the time we got to North America, we had spent 45,000 generations as hunters. So we were, uh, I mean, really professional hunting and gathering peoples by the time we got to North America. And particularly with the advent of the migration starting 16,000 years ago, we referred to in the book I call this culture, which is the first culture in America that stretches from the Pacific shores to the Atlantic and from basically from the Great Lakes to Florida. In other words, it spreads across what is now the continental United States. I call it Clovisia the Beautiful because mm. it lasts longer than the United States does. It consists of a culture of people we call the Clovis culture, and they are kind of professional big game hunters. And when they arrive here, I mean, you talk about technology, they have perfected and invent really in North America, a kind of a flint tool technology that is a remarkable step forward in terms of being able to hunt big animals, to kill animals like mammoths, for example, the size of obviously of African and Asian elephants and to be able to spread across the Americas, we think probably from out of Alaska to the tip of South America in maybe 300, 400 years, they managed to do this kind of ecological release that allows them to spread into this continent that had never really had uh, much of a human population at all before this. Uh, across these two continents. And in the process, uh, they helped wipe out a lot of the species that were here, species that were really naive about humans as predators, that had never confronted humans as predators before and uh, were relatively easy, some of them, to either kill outright or to push into populations that were so scattered that ultimately those populations couldn't exchange genes and as a result suffered what we now call genomic meltdown where they're not able, their gene pool is so small, they're not able to reproduce. So I was trying to, with Well New World, trying to do this big story about how America acquires its animals, how humans emerge uh, out of Africa, pass through Europe and Asia and eventually get to the Americas, the impact they had then I do another chapter, the third chapter of Wild New World, uh, which is called Ravens and Coyotes America. It's about this 10,000 year period after the Clovis 
the big game hunt is over, there's 10,000 years of native inhabitation of North America before old worlders ever arrive where we get a completely different story. What we get is a story where native people in America, understanding the mistakes of the past, manage through a variety of different approaches, including, once again, the philosophical approach about their relationship to the animals around them, namely their sense that other animals are kin to humans. They are just like humans. They have families, they have cultures, and they are kin to us. And there's even the possibility of passing between human society and bison society, for example. With those kinds of notions in their minds, with a small population, they keep their population under 5 million people for 10,000 years. And don't ever really invent the domestication of animals in any kind of significant way. Native people over that 10,000 year period domesticate turkeys. They have dogs, of course. They had domesticated wolves uh, and created dogs, but they don't domesticate. They don't do what people are doing in the old world who go through the so-called uh, agricultural or Neolithic revolution. They don't domesticate uh, the American equivalent of cattle and horses and sheep and goats and hogs. All that's going on in the old world. But in the Americas, we don't do that. And so one of the one of the things that does is down to 500 years ago, when the old worlders finally arrive and start bringing all their animals and all their ideas from their own specific history to America, America is sitting here with most of its ecologies preserved. There's only one extinction that I could find during that 10,000 year period uh, of a flightless sea death. <clears throat> in fact. And so here is North America with all this beautifully preserved ecological diversity over 10,000 years, a native population that's done so, it seems pretty consciously. And suddenly, of course, uh, out of the Atlantic, uh, unloading from these, what native people refer to as giant canoes, are these people from another part of planet Earth with a whole different religious tradition, a whole different economic tradition, a philosophy about their relationship with animals that's completely different from what the native people have. And the result is this last 500 years, which is really uh, a pretty remarkable one uh, in a, a kind of a different way. So anyway, I guess what I'm trying to convey to your listeners is, uh, for the big story, this Wild New World book is what I was trying to do with it. And once you get past those first three chapters, then you start getting into fairly more familiar territory where the Brits, the French, the Spaniards are all arriving in North America and seeing this this new, this wild new world that they're right. absolutely astonished by, in part because they don't they've never had any sense that America is there. And in all of their bestiaries in Europe, they have no animals that compare to things like a bison. Bison are mentioned 
in the old world bestiaries. Mm. Pronghorn antelope aren't mentioned. In the old world, almost everybody had already gotten rid of wolves everywhere. They had killed out all their big animals. They had wiped out all the predators and suddenly here they are in North America and this wild new world presents itself. And it's a, it's a pretty fascinating story from that point too. When you talked about the Clovis people and the big discovery, I think it was a um, uh, uh, Afri- African-American cowboy. And if you haven't lived in South Texas where there are lots of brown and black cowboys like I have, um, I always get a chuckle when I would go to our local little uh, sort of restaurant and there's people that um, you would not normally expect to see with a, a piece on their side and spurs on, but that's the, you know, Texas doesn't really care, just come and ranch. But in any event, um, yeah. these Clovis people that could hunt, they weren't hunting wildebeests. They weren't even hunting what we imagine as a bison, which is a, you know, or an elk or a moose, which is a significant animal. I wouldn't go out there with any weapon. And they're hunting with these um, uh, arrowheads and these ability to sling them. To your point, how terrifying would that be to run into a group of people that could track down animals like this uh, with, I don't know, I don't want to project confidence, but they that was their way of life to track them down. It is such a powerful, remarkable story um, as we dive into the rest of the conversation about human ingenuity and and power. But anyway, to encounter these um, this world that they lived in and this environment that they lived in, I didn't know any of those stories uh, before I read. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, so, you know, it was a, uh, it was not easy to do. There are, we've got, uh, you know, something like uh, 80 different Clovis sites in America that have been excavated. And uh, there's not much, uh, only one uh, Clovis burial, by the way, of uh, a young child actually in Montana. Uh, But we know from other uh, predecessor hunting groups that uh, particularly for for people like the Clovis people, this this first great coast-to-coast culture that I described, Clovisia the Beautiful, uh, they had not, although they had vented the fluted point, they had a way to create a large flint point with flutes on the base where you could attach it securely to a spear. These were not people who yet used at addles. They didn't use spear throwers. They were using basically spears. And so they were handing, uh, handling these spears, had them in their hands when they were run up, running up and, uh, and attacking uh, a mammoth. So just to give your listeners some idea of how effective these people were, there are three uh, archeological sites in Southern Arizona dating from the Clovis period where it's clear from the three sites that uh, a story unfolded here. And the story was essentially this, a group of Clovis hunters that, I mean, these bands included women and children as well as men, and everybody participated in the hunt, by the way, the children uh, as well. But this Clovis band surrounded a herd of mammoths with a bull, a cow, and 14 adolescents and calves. In the first of the archaeological sites that 
we found to reveal this story, archeologists excavated all 14 of the calves and adolescents in a small area, all killed each with one Clovis point in their body. All 14 killed with one Clovis point. The other two sites were where the bull mammoth and the cow had fled the slaughter of the young ones. And the bull had two Clovis points in him before he died, both in fatal positions. The cow clearly, and this is this sort of jives with what we know of elephant mothers anyway. Today, African and Asian uh, female elephants will fight to the death to protect their young. This mammoth cow had obviously done exactly that, but she finally read off uh, ran off badly injured and died about two miles away from where all of the young had died. And when archeologists found that site, that mammoth cow had eight Clovis points in her. She had obviously fought to the end and it had taken eight Clovis points to kill her finally. So if you kind of try to imagine a rodeo, a Pleistocene rodeo like that, taking place in effect on the outskirts of the present day Tucson, Arizona, mm -hmm. uh, you can kind of get some sense of what this sort of life was like. I mean, when we found uh, the skeletons, say, of Neanderthals in Europe, and I write about this in uh, the early chapters of Well New World, those Neanderthals were pretty much beaten to hell by the time they died. I mean, many of them, many of the men ended up with not, a, not just broken jaws and eyes gouged out by hooves or antlers uh, or rhino horns or whatever. They ended up with broken arms so badly broken that they had to be amputated. All the leg bones, including thigh bones, broken. I mean, that's one of the biggest bones. I think it's the biggest bone in the human body. There are some Neanderthals where the thigh bones were broken. So taking on these kind of big animals with nothing more than a spear and doing it for generation after generation after generation and obviously becoming very, very good at it, it's nonetheless a kind of a economic lifestyle that wore on early humans. And so right. it's no accident that one of the technological advances we tried to come up with and did so successfully was the at-addle, which allows you to stand back and throw a dart with a projectile point on it much farther than you, than you can throw a spear with your hand. The at-addle extended the human arm and it gave you a spear thrower like velocity to kill animals farther away. And then of course, finally, about 2000 years ago, the bow and arrow spreads around the world, which allows you to stand back even further. And those technologies that clearly are created to save you from being beaten to hell by taking on a large animal at close range with something like a spear. Something changed, something caught our imagination that we began to say, hold on, what are we doing? Can, can, do you have an opinion on what that was? And um, can you talk about it? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, I, 
I spend a good deal, a deal of time in the uh, world talking about this because it clearly is a, a question you have to pose. I mean, just as I had to pose the question, how and why did Native people manage to preserve the biological diversity of North America for 10,000 years? How did they do it? Why did they do it? I mean, that, those were operative questions when I did that Ravens and Coyotes America right. chapter. Um, when I turn to the next uh, the next part of the story, uh, which uh, begins with a chapter I call To Know an Entire Heaven and an Entire Earth, um, mm -hmm. what I attempt to do there is, is to approach old worlders, and I'm just kind of using that term to as a blanket term to combine, because we, of course, have a lot of different uh, cultural groups out of the old world who come to the Americas, right. the English, obviously, along the Atlantic seaboard, the French in the Mississippi Valley, uh, the Spanish in the Southwest and in California, and the Russians in, uh, in Alaska and in Northern California. So all of them out of the old world and all of them out of similar kinds of traditions in the old world. And mm. just to summarize those real briefly, what the old world story amounted to, because it was settled by humans earlier, as, as I mentioned, 60,000 years ago is when uh, modern humans began to arrive uh, in Europe. And humans don't get to North America until much, much later. So mm -hmm. the story of human spread, population spread, uh, is an older one in Europe. And therefore, the Europeans, the old worlders are going through some of these steps that most people go through at a, at a faster pace than happens in North America. For example, uh, the creation of agriculture after most of the big animals are killed in Europe, the, the creation of the next economic step uh, living by domesticating the animals that are left and by domesticating certain crops uh, like weed and barley and, and so forth. Uh, that occurs at about 10,000 years ago in the old world. In the Americas, agriculture and what little domestication <coughs> of animal, animals happens doesn't occur until about 4,000 years ago. So the wheel is turning, sort of pointing humanity in the same direction, both in the old world and in the Americas. It's just proceeding at a slower pace because America is fresher and newer uh, than Europe is. And the reason I mentioned this, this agricultural revolution is because it gives us some really important things. It not only produces this this bestiary of domesticated animals, which as old worlders come to the Americas, they bring with them, of course, they bring the cattle and the horses they've domesticated and they bring sheep and goats and hogs and chickens and all the rest. Many of which, by the way, had been passing diseases back and forth between themselves and humans for 10,000 years. That's where we get things like smallpox and flu and I mean, on and on and on. And <clears throat> That's not happening in the Americas. So one of the things, of course, that happens when the old worlders arrive in the Americas is that they arrive with all of these old world diseases, most of them caught from other animals, that 
Native people have no resistance to whatsoever. And that produces what we call uh, in the colonial history of North America, the great dying, where something like 80 to 90% of the native population is going to die out as a result of being infected with these diseases. But old worlders don't just bring those diseases to the America and effectively kind of suppress the native population, uh, although nobody really understands exactly why, because nobody knows anything about germ theory at the time. Uh, nonetheless, that's the consequence of bringing many of these domesticated animals and these old diseases to the Americas. But the Europeans also arrived with a tradition of protecting domesticated herding animals from predators. Many of the colonials in America did not believe extinction was possible. Mm -hmm. They all subscribed to the biblical idea and the old Greek idea out of what's called the great chain of being. It was a model of the world that Aristotle had designed where everything is ordered in a hierarchy with God on top and then the angels and then humans and then all other animals organized below in a kind of a chain, a link of chains, the ones that are most useful to humans, the first ones, and then the ones least useful down at the bottom. The idea was with the great chain of being and with biblical creation that God created the world perfect from the beginning. Therefore, it would always remain perfect. No animals had ever replaced other animals. There had never been extinctions, and there never would be extinctions because the world would survive just as it was at the moment of creation through all time. And so Americans blithely wiping out passenger pigeons and great auks and the eastern prairie chicken and wiping out beaver colonies and eventually wiping out buffalo and pasture pigeons and Carolina parakeets and I mean on and on and on for many people it was like well our teachings tell us we can do this because these animals were put here for us to use and of course we can't really make them go extinct anyway we'll just all this in motion and see what happens and of course, by the time we get to about 1900, about 120 years ago, we realize what the consequences are. We have lost species after species. We've driven animals like buffalo, which at one point probably numbered as many as 30 million on the Great Plains, down to fewer than a thousand of them in the 1890s. Pronghorn antelope, which probably numbered 15 to 20 million, down to 7,000 animals. And some of them, passenger pigeons and Carolina parakeets and great oxen, Eskimo curlews, and I mean, just on and on and on, are completely gone. We've completely wiped them out. So, I mean, it's a, it's kind of a hell of a story, really. And as I said at the beginning of this, Dave, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to tell this story is because I know from talking to people and from teaching classes at universities for uh, a lot of years that uh, just like your kids, as you said, hardly know anything at all about the bison story. That's almost the only story that most Americans really remember from any of this. And usually what they remember is one time there were a whole lot of buffalo and then there were almost none of them. As you describe this, this 
tsunami that hits North America that just any of the groups that were there weren't prepared in any way to experience of for this experience was coming. One, have we learned our lesson in your world anyway, have we learned our lesson and are we using technology, whether it's the word of the, the phrase of the day, artificial intelligence or any of these other technologies to help make sure people, human beings understand one, the consequences, but two, how do we embrace this world so that we can have the best world possible for all human beings? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I mean, you're asking questions that are really pretty, pretty central to this story. Uh, and, uh, people who read wild new world or who uh, listen to the audio, uh, versions of the book are going to come across, uh, if they have your, your kind of, uh, intellectual curiosity in their heads, they're going to come across this kind of lesson from early American history, because, you know, sort of to start at the technological, uh, stage for the arrival in North America, one of the mm -hmm. things that old worlders have the luck to bring to bear on the North American continent when they arrive is that they had been residents for 60,000 years of the largest land mass on earth mm. with cultures from Western Europe to the Middle East, to Africa, to Asia, all basically connected together in the Eurasian landmass. And what that meant was that any really good invention, anything that somebody came up with as an idea, I mean, the easy one <clears throat> as an example, of course, is gunpowder invented right. in China those ideas are going to diffuse across that entire landmass and get essentially to everybody. And so the French, the British, the Spanish, the Russians who end up in North America, the Dutch are all going to be the recipients of thousands and thousands of years of human invention across the Eurasian landmass that gives them a kind of a technological advantage when they arrive in North America, they've got they've gone through, for example, the Iron Age, and so they have steel tools and implements. They've picked up the invention of gunpowder, and they have uh, fairly rough versions of modern weaponry, but they do have <clears throat> firearms. They have steel traps to bring to bear uh, in this global economy for furs, mm -hmm. and. It's not just that they arrive, first of all, with microbes on their breath that kill many, many millions of the native people in the Americas, but because they arrive with this technology, they're going to be able to offer to native people a technological leap into a kind of a modern world with steel, iron, gunpowder, all kinds of, of new advantages that essentially is going to seduce even the native people in America into buying into the global market economy. And so one of the stories, it may be a shock to some of the people who read Wild New World, but one of the stories that one has to tell is that the global market economy not only has the old worlders in its grip, 
it eventually snares many of the native people too, who end up hunting animals for the market in order to have something to trade to the Europeans for this new technology. And so that's one of the ways that technology really plays a, an, an important role in early America. And the other thing that I would say that uh, I think it's, it is compassionate in a way towards the Europeans who are arriving. And of course, not many of them are trying to think through the whole consequences of what's going on. They come out of, many of the Europeans come out of a tradition of feudalism where the lower classes have been kept from participating in hunting deer. For instance, you mentioned the sheriff of Nottingham. I mean, the whole Robin Hood story is about how Europeans in the Middle Ages, the centuries before they came to North America, had been prevented from participating in the classic ancient hunt that humans have always been so good at because of the economic system in the old world. Wild animals like deer were preserved for the nobles and for the king. And so ordinary people didn't get to go into the forest and hunt. That's why the sheriff of Nottingham is always chasing Robin Hood, who is a deer poacher. So those people come to the Americas and suddenly it looks as if a world brimming with creatures is theirs for the taking and nobody is saying you can't go into the king's forest. You can't, you can't not hunt white-tailed deer or wild turkeys. You, you are free to trap beavers. And so it's kind of this release from the oppression of the old world. I mean, we talk about North America being founded in religious freedom. It's also founded in the freedom to participate in the life of the forest and the hunt. And it becomes, by the way, that that particular freedom becomes one of the strongest and most compelling franchises in American history. I mean, I in several instances throughout Wild New World, as I'm telling this story, I quote people who basically will say a European traveler will come to America and say, my God, why are you letting your people destroy all these animals like this? And the American response over and over, decade after decade, is killing animals is one of our freedoms. It's Mm. part of being an American. No one is going to submit to some government telling us we can't do that. And so it's why, for instance, in the 19th century, when buffalo are being slaughtered to the point where they're down to fewer than a thousand animals, the federal government does not lift a finger to stop it. They don't, the federal government does not lift a finger to stop the slaughter of elk, of mule deer, of bighorn sheep, of passenger pigeons. It just lets this happen because it knows the American people are not going to put up with restrictions on this freedom that they've always really valued. And it really is difficult. We finally begin to to place restrictions on killing animals for profit in particular for the market in the very beginning of the 20th century. But a lot of the first game wardens who are hired to do this end up killed. They end up getting shot down uh, in the swamps of Florida 
are in the woods of the Carolinas, uh, are in the uh, the deer hunting fields of Pennsylvania. I mean, it was one of the most threatening jobs you could possibly take uh, to try to be a game warden in early 20th century America. I mean, your chances of getting shot by somebody were, were really excellent. So right. it was really a struggle for America to ever manage to put a lid on this. But much of the story of the 20th century is about how we finally do it. So, so Dave, what this kind of is really speaking to is in order for Americans, probably any human population in significant numbers to, for everybody to enjoy a good life, we can't just do the anarchy thing and just open everything up to everyone's sense of, I'm a free person, I can do whatever I want in the world. Because right. if you let that happen, the story of America is that you destroy species after species after species. And the only way for us to really go forward and for everyone to get to enjoy the bounties of uh, an ancient American bestiary, what parts of it that are still left, is we have to submit to some kind of restrictions so that selfish and greedy people don't destroy it for all the rest of us. I have a quick comment, but then I have a question. I know we're coming up at the end of time, <clears throat> and I, I want to make sure I honor that. But if you'll indulge me, one of, just a comment you were talking about earlier, it, it seems to me, and this is my opinion only, um, in the in the Genesis story, uh, as that as I understand the story, <clears throat> that when the when the com, the command is given to to uh, the man and the woman to Adam and Eve in the setting of this perfect garden and so everything like all stories it's all about context you're given authority over these things but also in the story of people that are familiar with it at least my understanding of it there wasn't death it wasn't authority to go kill things it wasn't authority to go and um you don't see them consuming or whatever until later in the story when they have this idea of sin come in but when it was created and it was perfect there's no death in the story. There was no harvesting. It was the management. You're like a game warden. You're the custodian of these things. You have responsibility for knowing them. And and I think one of the most beautiful, I'm not trying to pick on any particular group that may think of it differently, but to me, in the most beautiful version of that, um, I know these animals. The lamb lays down with the lion. I've named them. My hands in the fur, in the mane. I'm, I, I'm, I'm able to to move and perhaps even converse. I don't know, but I'm able to. I'm able to interact. I'm a tiller of the soil. I do all of these things. I'm gonna have a relationship with this other person who is not, um, who is made out of my rib. It's an equal. And so this original. Uh, for me, that story in its in its most romantic form, um, and in the original form, that is I don't know about kinship exactly in the way that you're describing it, but it's much more similar to that than look across the horizon and how can I exploit these things and perhaps remove some of them um, from the garden that I'm entrusted with, and so yeah. you know yeah. things in context. Here's my question, yeah. I guess you start off yeah. the book with the story of coming out of your uh, tent. By the way, I think you were talking, and there was an elk migration going on, if I remember caribou. correctly. Caribou, caribou, thank you, caribou. Yeah. And I think you also said your wife was with you. 
Uh, is that correct? So we, I have a 36-foot tow-behind RV. I can barely get my wife to go to the lake an hour away in the 36-foot glamping. You are a pretty powerful salesman. Good on you. But as you talk about that, in my mind, I'm hearing um, the noises of the caribou and how they're probably communicating to each other and, and how they're moving. And I, I can't help but think, when I, my wife and I, who, my wife's half Japanese, We've been practicing. We're getting ready to go to a, a trip um, out of country to Japan, and we've been practicing speaking into our phone with Google Translate. So we speak in English; it converts it to Japanese to our audience. My daughters speak Korean and Japanese, and then they speak back in their language. And so we're just we're practicing with this tool. Tell me if I'm crazy, but it seems to me that there is the potential, maybe not with all species, but certainly with some species, that if we have HD cameras monitoring a population. And we have HD audio devices, whether it's around a harness or I don't know how they would do this out out in the way that um, naturalists observe animals anyway and catch them on film. But if you've got the ability for some amount of time, weeks, months, years to monitor and they can correlate and AI is helping us the sounds with behavior, would it be possible, do you think, that we could learn wolf language or learn caribou language in the same way that I can speak into this device and it translates it into Japanese and back and forth. And I'm not trying to be overly romantic and maybe it takes some amount of time. But if I'm able to um, interact with the environment, the living environment, whether it's animals in the way that we're discussing or the trees around me, I'm able to bring my... um, device in with me and it tells me that tree or that bush is not a threat. It's not poisonous. It's not a thing or that snake is not a threat to you. In fact, you want to cultivate having king snakes and these other regular snakes around you because they're going to help protect the environment. And this is what it does for you and your family. Do you think there's an opportunity for us to interact with technology like that, whether it's in this language idea that I've kicked around yep. here that maybe is romantic? But in a way that just we it helps us human beings better learn what it is that I'm interacting with, get respect, if not love and affection for it. Do you think there's a chance for that? Or is that Pollyanna? Uh, well, yeah. Well, so I would say, first of all, uh, uh, I think, yes, there is a chance for that. And then to back up and sort of provide some context, I mean, the way you introduced this, of course, you were referring to. Uh, the story I tell in the beginning of uh, it's a wonderful the, first, story. the first chapter in Well New World about uh, being on a uh, 12-day float trip through the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. Uh, there were 10 of us in two rubber rafts who started up at the, uh, in the Brooks Range and floated all the way down to the Beaufort Sea over 12 days. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, by the way, my wife was with me, and, and uh, there's a reason for that. My wife is actually, uh, she's for one thing, she's a Westerner. Uh, she grew up uh, running rivers and backpacking, and and so uh, doing a trip like this required no uh, no cajoling from me whatsoever. <laughs> and she, she also is a, a historian and a writer. In fact, she's got a brand new book called Losing Eden and Environmental History of the American West. Her name is oh, Sarah cool. Dan. So, so it was not hard to talk Sarah into and I didn't have to talk her into it at all, in fact. Right. But, uh, but of course, what you were referring to is my discussion of listening, sitting in the tent, listening to the conversation of tens of thousands of caribou migrating past our camp as right. we were camped out on the Hula Hula River. 
Uh, and, you know, I don't really try much to uh, discern exactly what they're saying, but, but clearly it's a conversation that's going on as these herds are going by. So I think to get to the, the question that you're asking, you know, the first place to start is to realize that we are not, we humans are obviously not alone in having language and in having language that other members of our species understand and understand well. Mm -hmm. I mean, most other species have language and they tell one another things which they recognize, they, they give alarm signals, they give signals of being content and of being safe, of where food is, I mean, all kinds of things, depends on the sophistication of a particular species and whether, of course, it's a, a, a Predators, for instance, like ourselves, tend to right. have fairly sophisticated signals because you often have to have a language that includes quite a bit about the information that has to do with your predatory lifestyle. So it's one of the reasons, for instance, uh, that wolves were our first, were humanity's first domesticate. I mean, there were several reasons for that. Obviously, they occupy the same niche that we did when we were predators. They too were predators. They also live in groups just the way we humans did. They also have to provide culture for their young. Wolves, coyotes, all the canids, just like you have to do with a puppy, you have to acculturate it and train it how to exist in the world you're in. And because wolves have such an emotional language amongst themselves, they were able to pick up our language, which is how we really were able to domesticate wolves into dogs. It's not that we understood so much about wolf language. It was more that wolves understood much about what we were saying. Mm -hmm. And so that particular example is to me a good pretty powerful bit of evidence that most people will understand readily that we certainly have the ability to communicate with other species. One of the things you have to recognize, though, is that while you may be interested in how the stock market is doing, the raven that's sitting outside has no interest in the stock market. The <laughs> raven is interested in other things. And so your conversation, if you're able to do it, has to take place on a level of things that are a commonality where the interests are similar. And right. so we're not really going to be able to talk to <clears throat> other species much about uh, how cancer research is going. But I do think, I mean, we've already got, of course, apps on your phones where you can hear a bird sing and you can point your phone at that bird song and it will tell you what species you're listening to. Right. I think that's probably the first step in this kind of maybe a chat GPT uh, AI kind of approach where we are able to do enough of a compendium of the sounds that other species make that we begin to get the kind of translation you're talking about that you and your wife are doing between Japanese and English. Yeah. Well, I guarantee I can tell you what, probably 70% of what the caribou were saying when they went by and it was, are we there yet? I promise yeah. you some amount of that. I yeah. think that's, uh, and where, that's a, is, where are the wolves? Yeah. Where are the wolves? <laughs> I see a wolf right 
For sure. Well, Dan, I haven't even gotten to half of my questions, two-thirds of my questions. I know I could trap you all day. I'm not going to do that. I appreciate your um, patience. My hope, first of all, I'm going to recommend, and we'll have links to your books, not just uh, Wild New World, but all of them. I, it's such a great, interesting, fascinating, at times heartbreaking, and other times optimistic stories that I, I've just become fascinated with. So I appreciate you writing those, and I can't wait to uh, read what you write next. But I, I, I am. Uh, I'm optimistic that um, people can take away from these things an opportunity not just to understand with more clarity and accuracy the world we've come from, um, but but as we look forward at the future new world, the future wild new world, that we can interact with in a way, whether they have a tradition like me, a Judeo-Christian, or they have a different tradition, whatever it is, that it's not a barrier or an excuse to react as poor stewards of the resources in front of us that we should take seriously in the way that we should take seriously raising our children. We should take seriously how we're good citizens with each other wherever we live and how we should be good citizens, leveraging every technological advantage um, for the betterment of the things that are entrusted to us. And my hope is um, that Understanding the the uh, the things that some of the places that we've come from in our own backyard, that we'll be able to do that in a much better way, and that people engage. My audience engages with historians like you, and it sounds like your wife Sarah, to help us to get a perspective. Agree or disagree? I mean, have a have a have a conversation so we can sort through it, but just don't live in ignorance to um, to move forward. And I, I'm confident that we. That if we do that in the way that you lay out in your book, as these things, unfortunately, too late in some many circumstances, but as we as we confront the real consequences of um, not paying attention, that it may be consequences we don't want. So we need to uh, we need to continuously act. So anyway, thanks for yeah. coming on the show. Yeah, you bet. I would just say as a, a last word. Uh, um, this is the this year, 2023, is the 50th anniversary year of the passage of the Endangered Species Act of 1973, which is the act that America finally came to to rescue so many of the creatures that we had been steadily losing before. So we rescue the bald eagle before it goes extinct. We rescue the peregrine falcon. We rescue the California condor. We're returning wolves to the wild in America to do their role in ecologies all over the continent. So it's, we've come a long, long way. And uh, this is a year to celebrate one of the great legislative acts in American history that's helped to get us to this point. So I hope uh, everybody who's listening is aware of that and will spend a little time reflecting on what we get to have as a result of the passage of that act. We didn't, my grandparents saw passenger pigeons. I'll never get to see passenger pigeons, but I have seen California condors. I've spent a lot of time with bald eagles. I spent a lot of time with wolves in the wild, and I am delighted that that's the direction we seem to be going. I hope so, and you know what's heartbreaking is that my children, if they heard you say that, or they will hear you say that, would be like, wait a minute, we had to protect bald eagles? Like the, like the idea of having to protect our national these, 
yeah. our national symbol. Yeah. I mean, yeah. much less what I would hope that we would impart is let's not just protect the things that we think are elegant and beautiful. I think it says more about us as human beings that we protect the things that are inelegant, maybe unbeautiful, but they're valuable, right? Yeah, if we, we, yeah. we do that, we, we try to do that with people, um, you know, people that are born with uh, um, uh, physical, emotional, and mental challenges. I mean, it seems for most of us the right thing to do to do that. But it's true. Unfortunately, it's part of the human condition that if we don't remind ourselves, and I think your books do that great, and, and if we don't leverage, whether it's the technology around us, to help remind us of that, we could very easily slip into a place, whatever our motivation, um, that's heartbreaking. So, uh, Dan Flores, thanks for coming on the QTS experience today. I really appreciate it. It's been my great pleasure. Thank you so much, Dick. Thank you. And if you all have enjoyed the conversation, please like it. And if you loved it like I did, please subscribe. We'll see you next time, everybody. Take care.